you're listening to KDNK's public affairs program, For Land's Sake. I'm Bill Kite, your host, and today our guest is a fifth-generation Coloradoan, Jared Kirst, farmer and owner of Rivendell Farms and Rivendell Beef, a regenerative agricultural farm. Welcome, Jared. Hi, Bill. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. Uh, glad to have you today. I, um, I know some people know what regenerative farming is, uh, but what, what is that practice and that philosophy? Well, I suppose we have to address the fact that it is uh, somewhat vocabulary-driven, uh, right? Like organic and sustainable. It's just another word. This particular one, uh, Rodale coined as uh, t- techniques of farming. You'll hear it called eco-farming or other things. Uh, the word itself, regenerative, makes me think of uh, a biology experiment where you lop off the foot of some kind of salamander and it regrows but but the word the word and what it translates to in farming really gets back to the soil most of the time both in metrics quantitative and qualitative is that you're trying to rebuild the ecosystem within which you're growing whatever your crop is or plant or or animal and so there's a lot of people who um you know who do this regenerative agriculture and have a specific thing like carbon sequestration or uh, one real common metric is the amount of biodiversity but that's really hard to measure um, at least from a, a layman's farmer's perspective so what we're trying to do is is a direction right where we're trying to make the environment within which we're operating more productive not less um, and to be honest that's been with less inputs, right? Because traditionally we were producing a lot, but with imported nutrition, if you will, most right. of which was fossil fuel based, right? Yep. And so trying to get away from that, regenerative finds its nourishment within the system is the concept. And of course you're extracting some. So depending on uh, sort of what the what the crop is, you may have to replenish. But the idea to me and what I'm holding on to is that it it will be healthier and remain at least as biodiverse as I found it. Probably not as biodiverse as it may have been 20,000 years ago. Right. <laughs> I wasn't there, so <laughs> we won't be able to put a, a metric on that. Is we, Are we talking about a closed system or an open system here? Well, the idea of a closed system on a farm, for example, where there is no external input... Um, most people tell you that that's sort of fantasy. It doesn't mean that it's not admirable to think like that, right? Creating yeah. compost on farm, right? Uh, using animals, in- incorporating animals in the landscape, harvesting sunlight, which is the part that you know the the, in- the eternal input is the energy from the sun. Trying to convert that into energy in carbon forms for us. Um, so. The reality is that uh, there is no such thing as a closed system, right? but it's a goal to try to limit the inputs that we're bringing in from off-farm. And outside of that, we look at the community abroad. You know, I would I prefer to bring in compost from the Roaring Fork Valley as opposed to Utah, uh, but sometimes that's not possible. So I wouldn't say you can do a closed system. Uh, the idea of farming on Mars inside of a dome would be real daunting, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Wouldn't it be, for sure. Tell us a little bit about your farm, if you would, uh, what, what, how, what, how it got started and what 
you know, what you're trying to do at this point. Sure. Well, this farm, you know, the, the Quigleys, I believe, were the homesteaders, um, late 1800s. And that family, I still know uh, some of the offspring of that. Um, they sold it to a, I believe it was a mining company. Uh, some kind of oil and gas for the water rights, from what it sounds like. And there was a development on it uh, that didn't pan out, you know, was, whether it was the shale crash or not. And Dr. Mike Berkeley and his wife, Macy, bought the the ranch, which is roughly 500 acres, in the late 80s. And in 1989, started a sod farm in order to fund their nonprofit hospital uh, in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico, for wow. the Tarumara Indians that they call Mexico Medical Missions. So that was their uh, that was their mission, and the funding mechanism was the sod farm, right? They thought, oh, how are we going to make the most money per acre we can? And sod can be lucrative. So I joined their business in 1999 as an office manager. Um, the entire farm has been under a PUD development, and uh, right. they kind of – worked that into a, a a fairly valuable entity and then they decided to take the agricultural land that the farm was on and put it under a conservation easement with the Aspen Valley Land Trust. Gotcha. Which they did over the course of 10 plus years. Um, oh man, it must have been more than that, 15 or so, because it took a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of negotiating over the times, various tracts of land. But at the end of the day, um, the farm itself in in uh, 2010, when the economy was bad, uh, Mike and Macy decided they didn't want to have that liability, and I was kind of getting interested in trying to heal the farm, and so uh, we made the decision over the last next couple of years for me to buy it, which we, you know, so I took ownership uh, at the beginning of 2013. Okay. And that farm inside the boundaries is now 182 acres, of which uh, all but seven acres is under regular conservation easement agricultural um, easement and there's a seven acre building envelope that we run the sales business and you know any of the living quarters and things that we want uh, that's what we do that in and so it's been a sod farm uh, up until you know I was taking over I realized that the the inputs to produce turf grass sod were going way up uh, so for business decision it was like time to change things um, right and in that process of trying to figure out how to change it, how to heal the soil, uh, that journey started, and man, it led me down a rabbit hole into this regenerative thing, you know, <laughs> acres conferences, the organic farming communities, and then tons of books. I, I read uh, way too many probably, but so many books about it. And so my farm now is just an amalgamation of those things I learned, um, and it's how we've incorporated beef cattle into it, we're very low on sod right now. Um, we're producing sod on maybe 20 acres. And um, the rest of it has been really trying to regenerate that soil. So in that specific metric, trying to heal that soil, get the biodiversity both below ground and above ground. And, and that just comes by itself, to be honest. Uh, right. It's kind of like a spring, Alan Savory calls it, where you compress it with traditional agriculture and you let go. It wants to regrow, but sometimes there's some weeds along the way. Yep. yep. So that's what the farm's doing now is producing grass-finished beef, turf grass sod, and, you know, we've been dabbling in some things like garlic with Jean-Viev, and uh, that's right. that's sort of the status at the moment. 
What uh, What was one of the, or maybe more than just one of the books that was really helpful for you that you, you read, if you can remember? Bill, it's a long list, but I'll give you a few of okay. the key ones. Okay. I, I've been referring to it as my bibliography, I guess. Um, there's a guy named Alan Nation uh, that run the Stockman Grass Farmer. Uh, his, his books, uh, Grass Fed to Finish, has been a tangible book. But getting into a little deeper, it was uh, Alan Savory and Holistic Management turned my world around. Uh, Joel Salatin has written a bunch of books. Okay. You know, yeah. uh, The Pigness of Pigs is one that comes to <laughs> mind. Um, but, and then um, there was a book by Masanobu Fukuoka. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but that's how it seems like it is. Called The One Straw Revolution, and he talks about in Japan farming with what he calls do-nothing farming, but letting nature do it mostly. And okay. So these books philosophically were building, and then I uh, met a man named Dr. Fred Provenza, and he wrote a book called Nourishment, and that sparked the why, uh, why I was trying to do this. And he connects our health, the animal health, and the soil health all together, uh, literally by the, the microbes that are in them, you know, and... Um, in the what he calls nutritional wisdom. So those are several. And then Gabe Brown, Dirt to Soil, has been sort of a an anthem that we've been learning. And um, I'm, there's there's many more that I've picked up a lot of little things from. Sure. Uh, but that probably encapsulates the, the bigger right. ones. So, so, it, so it took a lot of uh, information for, for you to make the decisions you made. Well, yeah, in classes. I went and sat through multi-day classes around the country, um, partly, honestly, out of fear that I would fail uh, at this operation. Sure. <laughs> uh, but that's my nature, so I needed to really just get after it. And sure enough, those classes came in handy. The books are good, but nothing is a substitute for for getting in the dirt. For and sure. Moving the cattle and just feeling what they're what they're doing. You you had what I would call a transformative experience over the last five years in, in doing all this. Um, could you sort of tell us about that a little bit on what, what the land did to you as well as for you? Sure, and maybe what I did to the land, because um, I, I take responsibility, you know, in the guise of making money, producing sod, using very traditional NPK, so it's nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium inputs, uh, plenty of herbicides, right, to control the monocrop that is turf grass, despite a few tricks I might have used. Um, so I, I hurt the soil, and in trying to heal it, I recognized that there was just a lot of uh, a lot of areas that were sick on the farm. And one particular early experience was I was, I was using a, a three-board, mold-board plow, behind the tractor and I was just folding the ground over. Uh, it had been an alfalfa experiment, but it was the first time that I smelled that soil. There's a, there's a soil smell that was healthy and just fills you, uh, fills your spirit somehow. And it's like tied into our brains. Uh, that, that was right before my dad died. And it was, it, it gave me a lot of motivation that I was, I was going to get somewhere. I wouldn't use a plow today, right? I'm trying to till the ground as little as possible. Um, but moving on through that, then, like I said, Fred Provenza and figuring out that my taste buds are tied to the soil directly and what it takes to re-nourish us, right? That's the, right. the mission I have is re-nourishing earth and 
it means a couple things, but renourishing both our depleted bodies with food, but that food has to be grown in soil that is healthy. In order to do that, I need to start by renourishing the soil in which I'm growing the food, you know, from which the grass grows and that the cattle, and it's very tangible. Uh, the nutrient density you hear people talk about. I'm I'm no scientist, so I'll leave that to them. But but the taste I can taste, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can tell the difference, can't you, in something grown in, in good soil? Yeah, and some of it may be psychosomatic because I'll bite into a steak and knowing knowing how those cattle were raised, I think I can taste it. But I hope other people can too. <laughs> All right. So do you have a available beef available for other people that you sell then? Is that? Well, yes. Um, you know, last year was our first year direct sales. I just brought back uh, the first batch from Kinnikin Processors in Montrose this morning. All right. Drove down there, long day, hustled oh, back, got it in the, the walk-in freezer, and, and then we took, will start selling it. It took time to be on, on the show. I appreciate I, that. No problem. <laughs> You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake, and today our uh, guest is Jared Kirst, owner of Rivendell Farms and Rivendell Beef. Okay, I, I'm sort of leading here into the next the next uh, part about history, since I'm, I'm a history buff. Is sure. Tell us a little bit about being a fifth-generation Colorado and how, how that came yeah, about. Yeah, so both sides of my family and then most of the other branches to be perfectly honest uh homesteaded in eastern colorado in the 1800s dry land farming that wasn't it it's all dry land then you know sod huts wow Uh, my great-great-grandmother one of them was gored to death by a bull beside the house you know and um and so that is where i come from in my mind uh beyond that you know i'm a mutt there's every nationality probably in me and so, uh, but at the end of the day that sort of informed who my parents became in ray colorado and then like I said, my dad he he viewed uh ranching and farming that he grew up doing as as poverty uh, right post-depression my great-grandfather had lost all of his cattle uh to the banks in the depression and my grandfather started with nothing, you know, um, told me he was often inclined to boil his shoes for the leather to eat. So my dad grew up in that world uh, and really decided it was time to get out of that. And, and I told you he put himself through uh, college and then law school at DU and became uh, an attorney here in Carbondale. He started his practice in the early 70s. And, um, and so I grew up here. Right, I was born and raised in, I guess, technically born in Denver because my mom didn't trust Valley View at the time. <laughs> but, uh, and then I grew up in Cattle Creek. Uh, Mona and Charlie Beck were my neighbors, uh, farmers. And so we had a little ranchette. My dad still hated farming. And so eventually we moved to town when I was 13. But uh, I went off to college, came back to run this business uh, as an office manager and then ended up loving the farming part and now that's what i do full time and my dad knew that before he he passed uh that i was back to farming and he wasn't sad about it at all you know he yeah. he recognized sort of the full circle thing that he, he was witnessing so that was cool and um so that is what you know colorado's always been in my bloods the mountains are my home uh we do still have family and 
and they're all farming. My uncle Greg and cousin Chris are farming in eastern Colorado on the family ground still. they actually the ones who uh, line me up with these cattle, bring them over to me. They're, these cattle are born and uh, calved there in, in Yuma, in Ray. What kind of cattle are they? Well, they're Angus uh, and Baldy, you know, mixed, that, that Hereford influence. Uh, we're looking for a little bit more moderate-framed cattle than are typically run these days, uh, cow-calf, because, you know, it's been bred for feedlots. Right. Um, I guess I should admit, I told you that both of my grandfathers owned and operated feedlots. Uh, so I'm, I'm now doing grass finishing, and I, you know, I don't want to disparage feedlots. I don't believe it's the right way to do it anymore, but they didn't. They were they were pushing the technology they knew. They were growing corn, um, and it seemed to make sense. Sure. And it's only now that I think we're recognizing the, that the animal, the the ruminating animal animal needs uh, they need grass. Yeah. Throughout their lives, for really we do we do too. We need them to have that so that the the lipid profiles are correct, and and then from a climate standpoint, it's the right way to go. So right. that's what I'm doing. All right. Uh, fascinating, I think. I really do. What what magic happens on your farm? You you got to be inspired to do what you're doing. And what inspires you when when you wake up in the morning to the end of the day and you're crawling in bed at night? Yeah, Bill. You know the view isn't bad, honestly. Uh, Sopus <laughs> and Capital, and but that is it's always there. But the the magic really on the farm seems to be always life focused. Um, dragonflies, uh, the northern harriers. It's one of the prime examples of like, uh, it's a reward, a proof that something's happening because I'm not doing very good at measuring the the normal statistics, carbon, soil sequestration or whatever. But I had a, a northern harrier show up on the farm for the first time since I'd been there. Um, showed up on the farm five years ago. Got a mate two years ago. Uh, so there was a pair wow. of these swamp hawks flying around the farm, helping me with rodent control. And this spring, there was only one, and I was I was sort of despondent because I thought something had gotten one, but I, I was too pessimistic. It turns <laughs> out uh, they must have been sharing duties on a nest. Yeah. And yeah. the next thing I know, Bill, there's four of them oh, wow. flying around, screaming at me, uh, I think in a nice way. But uh, that's the kind of magic that when I – when I see biodiversity doing its own thing, because I'm trying to get out of the way, and, you know, and I, I view it as stewardship, not just complete abandonment, but to be honest, the less I do wrong, the better it goes. <laughs> That's the truth with all of us, <laughs> yep. for sure, yep. for sure. Where is your farm located? Give us a little idea, because you, you mentioned well, what you can see from your from your Yeah, the Quigley farm. Uh, Ranch there is up in what we call Spring Valley. Okay. Uh, technically the north end of the Missouri Heights area. Um, and it's neighbors with Colorado Mountain College, the okay. original Spring Valley campus. The the Quigleys actually, along with the Nislanics, my neighbors were, were part of donating the land. Uh, and so they are my neighbors. I hope to work with them uh, ever closer in the future here uh, to try to encourage agriculture and, and get agriculture to be part of that program again. I mean, I I took CMC classes up there when I was in high school. So a lot of things come full circle, uh, Bill. My mom was a traveling nurse, and we got stuck on Kendall Road, which is the road that cuts through my farm, Right. Uh, when I was a little boy because she was going to, to visit old man Kendall. I'm 
don't mean any disrespect, but I think that's what we called him. Right. Lived by himself in that cabin with no electricity. So a lot of things have come full circle. The fact that I now run that farm uh, and remember it as a child, sort of like amazed mm-hmm. at the place. So we're up there in Spring Valley. Um, you know, the, there's a business selling landscape supplies up there in the sod um, still, and it's open Monday through Friday, so people are willing, welcome to come up. My beef sales, we're working out how that's going to go. Okay. You know, out of the freezer, come pick it up. Uh, delivery, I'm not exactly sure because um, that's not what I'm really great at. So I'm seeking help in that in that world. But okay, fair enough. Yeah. That's where we're at. With um, with your past background, your history of, of being a Coloradan, what legacy would you like to leave? You know, I've been giving it some thought with all the gray hair I'm putting out. Um, and honestly, there's a tangible part that I want the physical land that I'm stewarding to be better. And that's both qualitatively and quantitatively. I want it to produce more, but I want it to uh, just feel healthier, be more nourishing, even if it's just from a an aesthetic perspective, right? But I want the community, which is the bigger part of what I'm, I struggle with, I want the community uh, to also be bigger and healthier and more nourished. And um, I've been very isolated as a sod farmer and not engaged at all, and so I'm trying to change that. Okay. But, uh, you know, my kids, and I forgot to mention that I had two little girls, my wife Jenny Queen and I did, uh, and that was coinciding with all of this. And I, sh- I would be remiss to, to leave out the fact that it was the driving motivator that now I was no longer just selfish, uh, but there was something bigger. You know, how old are how old are they now? Seven and ten. Wow. Yeah. So, and they're obviously the joys of my life. But uh, to to think that I would leave them a degraded piece of property or something, and I'm not even saying they're going to be into the land or the farming, but uh, I would not want it degraded, no matter whose children it was. Right. So, right. That's been a big deal. Do you have contact with other regenerative? Agricultural farmers that you mm. you can rely on or trade trade secrets with. Or oh yeah, well in this community we're to. building um, the the Roaring Fork Farmers and Ranchers Group started by Harper Kaufman of Two Roots Farm uh, was the first community that Vanessa Harmony she you know she runs a uh, heritage tree farm on the farm on Rivendell okay called Colorado Edible Forest and she was instrumental just as a customer that I knew her became obviously a dear friend and now works with me and uh, introduced me to all these people, you know, and, and I knew Jerome from Crumpy where she was at. Um, and then I've met many more people. Um, you know, the Dooley Creek, Jake and Molly Shipman have been really handy and helpful and encouraging me. Um, and that is, their their spirit is the kind I like. You know, they do what I do. But yep. rather than scarcity and competition, they look at abundance, which is how I want us sort of all as a community to look at it. Uh, right. Because we, we need each other, and we need to grow this thing. And uh, it's one of the important parts. And Casey over there at, at Jason Sewell's place in Sunfire has become, you know, he's a force in the area. Right. And Alyssa with uh, Marigold and all yeah. those folks, at Jen over at, uh, at the Rock Bottom, they've yep. been really helpful. And Eden Vardy up there, met him, you know. And, and these guys that all farm, they're all become part of my community. I'm not great at 
interacting yet, but I'm working on it, right? right. And, and the more we can get that community behind each other, I think the more we'll get done. For sure. In the last few minutes we have here, if you had everything you needed to make your dream a greater reality, what would that look like? Ooh. Well, time and money. <laughs> time and money, okay. <laughs> I think that's a really good place. Yeah, to, now I guess this, this look a little more realistically. Yeah. That the time would be more people. People will be able to free up time because I can't, I can't do everything. I mean, I can't even do what I'm doing poorly at this right. point, to be honest. So community and people are critical to that, whether it's employees, interns, something. I mean, it's been a struggle still. Sure. Um, and then beyond that, the bigger community is going to be things like uh, processing in this valley, a food hub, right. a community supporting agriculture, not just CSAs. I'm not degrading that, but right. like real support. If I get uh, some kind of, and in my case, meat processing is what I'm really after, yeah. right? I, not to degrade the Montrose folks. I love them, but that's long, dang ways to haul my cattle. Oh, it is, for sure. And to bring back meat. So, and I and, and we have our unique things in this valley. I'd love to see grow that way. And, and there are there are other melons I want to see us tackle. Uh, sure. Equipment repair. You know, being a farmer around here, trying to fix stuff <laughs> is unbelievable. And I'm terrible at it, but I, I would love <laughs> to see us get, you know, equipment repair and then when it comes to the money side of things that's really a market issue right yes we need to keep our costs down but we need to produce a lot and and really grab a little bit bigger share of the food dollar in this valley because that right there is something good i don't have the stats bill but i think it's infinitesimally small for sure how much of the food dollars produced in this valley a lot of work to do a Amen. lot of work to do, but yep. community is the key. I appreciated that as, as you ended the community. Building community is what it's all about. The relationships are all of it. For sure. Thank you for listening to KDNK's For Land's Sake. Until next time at 4 o'clock on October 10th, remember, whatever you do to Mother Earth, do it for land's sake.